Live from the Stamp Show here today, infotainment party, did you bring chips? This is the award-winning Stamp Show here today, episode number 292, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Albert. This is Becca. This is Stan. And we have to wait for the pop-up to go away in front of my screen. There we go. Now I can read. So, Stan, your first stamp show as a dealer. What show were you at? I was at the Charlotte Stamp Cover and Postcard Show at St. Sarkis Ar- Armenian Church. It was put on by Kerry Cochran of North Carolina. He's a stamp, longtime stamp dealer, probably 50 years in the business. Um, Tony Crumbly was there with, with his covers and his CS, his Confederate States of America um, stamps. You had a few other stamp dealers. There were seven stamp dealers there this weekend. Um, it was a great show for expert stamp collectors. Most everyone who came in was an expert. They were looking for specific 1847 to 1857. Some of them were. Others were looking for French colonies. And my biggest issue was I didn't have that inventory. So <laughs> my stamp show wasn't as good as other dealers, but it was an interesting first experience for me. Okay, well, first thing we always ask of any dealer is, did you make your table cost? No. That's never a good thing. No, most everybody else did. I just didn't have the right inventory catch. That was my biggest issue. Well, that's I always a lot. That's always the case. First of all, you'll never have the ultimate perfect uh inventory, but it's not really inventory. You won't have the stuff that people are looking for always because different people walk in all the time. And so, you know, if people are looking for U.S. number ones on first day covers, you know, then you've got a problem because if you don't have a very, very large inventory, you're not going to have that sort of thing. Uh, So what were you selling? I had a full set of first day covers from 1954 to 1968. They're all art master. And I was trying to basically give them away at five for a dollar, but didn't get any takers. The The biggest seller for me, and I could have sold probably five more of the Austrian social distancing stamp. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> I sold two right off the bat on Saturday. And um, had I not promised you one, I would have sold the third one. Well, um, I appreciate you holding it aside for me. But um, did that and sold a few pre-cancels to a a collector. And just the inventory I needed to have was a little bit broader than 
oh maybe the first thousand stamps that the u.s issued and some and the first thousand stamps that germany issued that's that was basically plus my first day covers was my inventory well one of the things that i learned doing stamp shows is um you need to try and talk to everybody who comes in past your table and find out what they're looking for and then when they walk away turn around and write it down because I, next time you do the show, you'll at least have been prepared for the kind of material that you get asked for at that particular show. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance, you might even be able to put some of that stuff into your inventory. Yeah, and, and that, that is important. I wrote that down. I did do that, Scott. I wrote, that, I wrote those things down. And the other thing I did was collected names and email addresses for my mailer. So that I can send email notifications. Another good thing to do, yes. Well, one of the things, like Scott said, the reason why you want to ask people is nine times out of ten, you're just going to have the same people showing up for the show. You get a huge amount of repeats. So yeah, if you know what for a local show, absolutely. Right. So if you know what people are looking for, uh, and you have it on your table. Next show, they will probably be there, and especially at local shows, but even national shows, people come and they will hit a certain dealer who has the stuff that they're looking for. They'll go out of their way. If uh, you develop a clientele, the people will come to the show just to see you. Well, the other thing is, the other thing is, um, Stamp collectors tend to be more on the introverted end of the scale. And so a lot of times they'll cruise around the room looking at you and seeing you interact with other people before they decide they want to even approach you. So making any kind of contact um, can be interesting with a collector that, that is not necessarily socially... Uh, wants that interaction. So it, you have to develop relationships as well. And uh, ev- even just to the point of saying hi and letting them see your face and and asking those few questions, even if they walk away with nothing, you've at least gotten through the door. And, and next time they come, maybe they'll be a little more willing to talk to you. Well, I'm going to go beyond that because Scott is absolutely correct. But what you're dealing with there is really sort of salesmanship 101. And one of the things that I have noticed, the difference between a successful dealer and a dealer who complains that he doesn't get any sales, is one person will sit behind the table and let the stamps speak for themselves. That's the person who doesn't get any sales. You have to interact with the person you stop they walk by you say hi how are you and you ask the question that is an open that's what they call an open-ended question right it's like if you say hi they say hi and then they walk on you say hi how are you now they are going to do something it may be they ignore you and walk off but generally speaking you're starting a conversation Then when they say, oh, it's terrible, my wife just died, my dog got run over by a truck, and uh, this is the worst thing. Yeah, (laughs) you're 
Then you say, and you empathize with them, which is what you do and, in that case. And as soon as you empathize with them, and it's like uh, they say, "Hey, it's a great day. I love the weather outside." You say, "Me too." What are you looking for? You immediately follow it up and you ask open-ended questions. Don't don't say, can I help you find something? Because then they could just say no and walk away. Right. You, right. It, it's, it's the, it, if you want to see what good salespeople are, go to a used car lot. Never answer, never ask a yes or no question. Yeah. We, we want to engage the people. We want to find out what they collect so that next time we can bring it. But probably if you're an average dealer, not everything is on the table. Yeah, because most dealers specialize in a certain area. Yeah. It might be French areas. It might be German. It might be British. It might be U.S. Um, It's really hard to specialize in everything. Well, the last show that I had which was the Las Vegas show, what was it, Becca, like two weeks ago or something like that? Three weeks ago. Three weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah, you were there. And um, I had junk on my table. I mean, I admit it, it was junk. But it was cheap. You know, the stuff was priced in the 1970s, and I was charging like half of that. But it was all topical, so you could go through it and find good stuff. And I had about five people who came by and bought 15 cent to 25 cent, 50 cent items. And I ended up doing, well, my, because I, you know, the show promoter, my table was free. So I, I, I so did, you made your table. Fees. Yeah. So I made my table fees, but I did like $275 on people who were spending 25 to $50 on stuff that you know was costing them like 15 cents to a dollar an item so you know it was a lot of bulk the people made a lot of bulk but i had something probably for everybody and right in addition to that behind the table i did have a u.s stock and I also had Austria, and what else did I have? I had U.S., Austria, Philippines, and a couple other countries, but they weren't on my table. So that's how I do it. So very, at this very- show, Catch, the average, the average sale from what I could see looking around the room was 100 to $300. People were buying number – they were buying – Trans Mississippi, they were buying high end Great Britain. Well, and at the Las Vegas show, we sort of had the same thing. Me, the stamp club, the Las Vegas stamp club, and Jim Forty were at the low end. Mm-hmm. And then Dave Cobb was definitely at the high end. And uh, then uh, Bill, uh, Bill Hantos, he was at the higher end, and then Leland Wolf was sort of at the middle. So we had a large range of people, but the average sale means nothing because um, because Bill Hontos may sell a $200 item and make $50, whereas I'll sell a $51 item and make $50, you know, because it's just different types of things, how long it takes to get a sale, 
um, how much you buy uh, it for. Well, a lot of that happen- is probably in the fact that um, you're you're thinking of you know a single stamp sale versus a, a an accumulation, a lot, a collection, something like that. You're selling bulk, bulk, yeah. and he's selling single stamps. Yeah. So the the profit margin on single stamps is typically a lot lower than it is on bulkier items, collections, and things like that. Yeah. But would I do it again? I would. Um, it was educational. I didn't expect to make table fees at this one, knowing that this was my first one. I just wanted to get my feet wet and figure out exactly what I needed to do to be a better dealer at the next one. Well, there's other things. There's lots of uh, you know business things that you can do to make, make your life easier to show, too. And you, yes. and that that you can talk to other other dealers and people on uh, outside of the show to make your show run smoother, so that you don't have you know you're not looking for things at the booth. Or, oh, I left that at home, you know you know things like a roll of tape to tape down your <laughs> display. You know just various things I, you don't think about when you're not at the show, but then you arrive and you're like, oh crap, I don't have the time to right. drive home for an hour. And then back, and then uh, and then finish my setup in time for the show to start. So, you know, you talk to talk to other dealers that set up and find out some of the things they carry in their in their their show box that uh, is, is not stuff for sale, but just stuff to help them with uh, setup and running the booth. Yeah, standard like bur- the eighteen by twenty four sheet of um, clear plexiglass to yes. cover your items, not, and, or it's more than or that. the. T- or a tablecloth. Or the tablecloths. Yep. Which I, yes. Or a f- extension cord to have your credit card reader turn on. Yeah. Or all of um, the internet when mobile internet when the the venue doesn't have internet. So it's all of that. Well, I'll tell you what's in my box that I bring. A pair of stamp tongs that always gets lost. And so I end up finding another one. Sometimes I got two pairs and I look at it and go, where did the extra pair come from? And the other times I look at it and there's none. It's like, okay, well, because in my opinion, you never own stamp tongs. You just rent them and they go back into the universe. But stamp tongs, you have to have glass scenes, big glass scenes, big giant glass scenes because people want, you know, stuff, put in stuff. Uh, About $31 bills. And a roll of packing tape. And that's what I, and then I also have a red tablecloth just in case because it, nobody has red tablecloths. So, I do. Oh, well, I mean, the show promoters, they'll put out like black and stuff like that. So you have a different color. So yours sets aside. As long as that's okay with the show promoter. Yeah, generally speaking, it is. I can only think of one show that's kind of Nazi ish about that, where they want all the booths to match. Uh, so, you know, Westpacks, you know, I wasn't going to say the name, but yeah, you named it. <laughs> did you bring lights, Dan? What, what was that, Albert? Did you bring, did you bring uh, table lights of any sort? Yes, I did. I brought, I brought the Sunbeam, um, LED desk lamp. Mm-hmm. You can buy them for a dollar at, um, any dollar store. Mm-hmm. Um, they work great. 
and there's one on my desk right now. I got to look for that. Yeah, I, I I never have lights on my table. I never sell anything that has to be well, under a light. If if you're selling single stamps, you always want to have lights. Yeah. If you're selling collections, yeah, lights are okay, but not necessarily required. Yeah. Right. Yeah, my my average sale is between one dollar and let's say two hundred and fifty dollars. That's a pretty big range. Yeah, it's a huge range, with a lot of them in the less than twenty, but a lot of them in the two hundred plus. I mean, that middle range doesn't exist. Right. I have actually sold more this week online than I did at the stamp show. Oh, I do that every week, but, you know, I sell on eBay. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you've been doing it for so many years that you have a, a clientele that comes back. Yeah. Well, that's the reason why is um, the stuff that I sell at the show is almost always stuff which is difficult to ship. If it was easy to ship, I'd put it on eBay. If it's not easy to ship, you know, it's a box or something like that, then I sell it at the stamp show. That's my problem. I have lots and lots of collection lots, and they're not easy to sell on eBay. Yeah, that's why the show is great. Although they fit in priority mailboxes, but uh, yeah, pe- but then pe- people balk at paying nine bucks for shipping. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing is, you know, if you have a item. It's big and bulky, and it's going to cost nine bucks to ship. It may only be worth ten dollars, so I'd rather take it to a show and sell it for ten bucks and hand it to the person than sell it for a dollar on eBay. Well, and then put it into and give the post office nine dollars. Well, not only that, then eBay and PayPal take a chunk too. Well, that's okay because I use discount postage, so I'm not actually paying nine dollars either. But, but. It, it is a thing where, you know, the shipping makes a difference for me as to what I sell at the table. Mm-hmm. And that and ding of a... That Tony ding was of there a, this weekend. Oh. Tony of... Um, Bar- oh, Barney, Barney Stamps. Stamps. Barney Stamps, yeah. Yeah, let's give him a quick uh, shout-out. Uh, BarneyStamps.com uh, or... I don't remember. I don't know. I don't remember what it is. I do Cut a search for Bar- Barney Stamps. Yes. Nice guy. Oh, yeah. Great guy. Well, this day in history is a fiver. So we're paying somebody else to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you paying me to handle it? <laughs> in 1849, President-elect of the United States, Zachary Taylor, and Vice President-elect Millard Fillmore did not take their respective oaths of office. They did so the following day, leading to the erroneous theory that outgoing President pro tempore of the United States Senate, David Rice Atchison, had assumed the role of acting president for one day. Taylor's death from Wikipedia, well, he didn't die from Wikipedia, uh, says on July 4th, 1850, Taylor reportedly consumed copious amounts of raw fruit and iced milk while attending holiday celebrations during a fundraising event at the Washington Monument, which was then under construction. Over the course of several days, he became severely ill with an unknown digestive ailment. His doctors diagnosed the illness as 
cholera morbus, a mid-19th century term for intestinal ailments ranging from diarrhea to dysentery, but not actually cholera. Yeah, more likely it was just food poisoning. <laughs> cholera. Severe food poisoning. Cholera was a widespread epidemic at the time of Taylor's death. The identity and source of Taylor's illness are the subject of historical speculation, though it is known that several of his cabinet members had come down with a similar illness. So everybody who says Tyler, Taylor died, or excuse me, Tyler died because he didn't wear a coat during his inauguration. Zachary Taylor, not Tyler. I think that's William Henry Harrison, because he gave a 30-minute speech. Oh, Harrison, yeah. That was probably just uh, milk that had gone bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, in 1861, the first national flag of the Confederate States of America, the Stars and Bars, was adopted. In 1865, the third and final national flag of the Confederate States of America was adopted by the Confederate Congress. And that's... Uh, this is important to stamp collectors. Well, we, first of all, there were, the second one was the... Uh, battle flag the confederate cross on a white field and people complained that the white flag looked like they were surrendering and so they added a red bar at the end so when you're looking at confederate covers the best way to um, expertize them is very very common they have a flag on them and so you need to look at what the date of the flag is. They went through three separate flags over a course of four years. So if you see the wrong flag on the dated cover, that's how you can tell that this is a manufactured thing. A lot of these uh, patriotic covers, both Union and Confederate, exist without stamps on them. And so people would get the envelope, put a stamp on it, and cancel it, and then sell it as a patriotic cover as opposed to a patriotic envelope, and just skyrockets the value. Knowing when these flags were issued is the number one way to tell whether or not that stamp was added later on and does not actually belong on that cover. One of the foremost experts was at the stamp show this weekend, Tony Crumbly. Um, he is he is widely recognized as one of the foremost experts of Confederate covers, Confederate stamps. He's expertized a lot of them, and he's also a regular member or editor of Lynn's stamp catalog for the Confederate States of America. Well done. Well, also in 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt becomes the 32nd president of the United States. He was the last president to be inaugurated on March 4th. Also in 1933, Frances Perkins becomes United States Secretary of Labor, but the first female member of the United States cabinet. She is on Scott number 1821. It's a blue 15 cent Frances Perkins stamp. Yeah, I had seen this stamp forever and ever, never knew who Francis Perkins was. And, I mean, this is one of the 
problems that I see with the U.S. Post Office. This is a 15 cent rate, so what, 1980 something? And it shows a blue stamp with Frances Perkins, her name underneath it, and no other information. Turns out she was a really important person. Well, often people who get stamps are. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But the only way you're going to know who she is is either you're a historian or you're a big fan of Annie because she's fe- she's featured in Annie pretty prominently. Yeah, yeah. I love that part. Huh? The movie Annie. They talk about the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration and a lot of the cabinet people and secretaries are in the movie Annie. As a matter of fact, Iggy's is. Who is the person who uh, is instrumental in the uh, production of the Farley sheets? We're talking the original Annie, right? The ori- yeah, I guess yeah, the so. music, there's, the music, there's been several remakes of it. The musical and also the movie both refer to the Roosevelt administration. Yeah, I'm thinking if there was a remake and, you know, instead of uh, the Roosevelt administration, they used like the Trump administration, that would make an interesting movie. Says the is the master race. The higher, higher, right in the poorest face. Not to love the poor is a great disgrace. So the higher, right in the poorest face. Well, this week in Disney stamps in 1943, Disney's De Fuhrer's face won an Oscar for short subjects of cartoons. At the 15th Academy Awards held at the Coconut Grove of the Ambassador Hotel of Los Angeles. Although Frank Churchill and Edward Plum are nominated for scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture for their work in Bambi, Max Steiner takes home the Oscar for his contribution to Now Voyager. This, this is interesting because... I never knew that that was a Disney cartoon. I never knew. And then I'm looking at it and going, I got to check out this cartoon. And I pull it up and there's Donald Duck reading Mein Kampf. And I thought, wow, this is really weird. I can see why it's not played very often. Right. So what is a Disney stamp? According to the Handbook of Disney Philately by William Sylvester, a respected authority on Disney stamp published in 1990, a Disney stamp must be drawn by Disney artists and authorized by the Walt Disney Company, although not everyone agrees with that definition. There are many different opinions as to what is and what is not collectible. Because of the influx of foreign countries issuing Disney-themed postage stamps in the 1980s, there has been heated debate by stamp collectors in stamp publications bemoaning the desecration of the hobby by what they term wallpaper, since the stamps were obviously produced not for postal, but, for, but to generate income from collectors who would never use them. However, on the other hand, Disney stamps have probably done more to recruit new collectors, young and old, beyond the regular community of stamp collectors than any other stamp issues. Stamp dealers have no difficulty selling what they have in stock, and few Disney fans are ever willing to part with the Disney stamps they own. 
It is unlikely that Disney will ever command large investment returns, though a few of the early issues are becoming increasingly hard to find. Says Jim Kokis, although my dad tried to get me into stamp collecting when I was a kid, I quickly became more interested in collecting comic books. For me, collecting Disney stamps is like pin collecting. Hey, hey I'm familiar with that. Yeah, there you go. I only buy those that I like and feel are worthy of the price while my friends worry about edition numbers, cast exclusives, and whether their investment will increase. Yeah, I like the Disney stamps, but, you know, when Grenada puts out a when, zillion of them. When Disney got Marvel and they came out with the first Disney soda fountain Marvel pin comic book cover remakes. Oh, they made pins? Yes. Oh. And at one of them, I can't remember if it was that one, but there was one particular Marvel movie release uh, at Disney Soda Fountain, and Stan Lee was actually at the Soda Fountain and came down and kind of walked the line and waved everybody. That was... the. You know, wow. I, I was like from you to me here, like two, three feet away, and you know, waiting. No, no, to no, no, no. We're under COVID. We're uh, we're all in different locations here. Yeah, of course we are. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was the the cover ones, comic book covers, like the first, um, the first issues, like the first. Yeah. You know, were like made into pins, and they were in. Went insanely priced, if I remember correctly. Well, Disney pins are incredibly popular. So we recently had an anniversary for Snow White, speaking of which. Mm -hmm. Snow White was originally released in the Carthay Circle Theater in Hollywood on December 21st, 1937. It was not only Walt Disney's first full-length feature film, it was the first animated feature to be produced in English and in Technicolor. The result was astounding. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was met with a standing ovation at its first viewing, and the acclaim rolled in from there. Audiences and critics alike praised the film as a marvel of cinematic possibility. One of the first game-changers of modern filmmaking, Walt won an honorary Academy Award for the film presented to him by Shirley Temple. Animated films didn't exist before now, so neither did an award category. The music for the movie, the first film soundtrack, was nominated for an Oscar. Oh. That's interesting. Beyond Snow White, though, real quick, they mentioned uh, Carthay Circle Theater. Oh, when yeah. They, when they remade uh, Disney's California Adventure, they actually put a, a mock-up of Carthay Circle Theater, and they have a restaurant in there that is astounding. Where is Carthay Center, uh, the Carthay Circle Theater in Hollywood? I don't know that it still exists. Oh, uh, okay. That's why I never heard of it. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, they made a remake of it, and it's like, if you think of Disneyland and you go down Main Street and you hit the hub and there's like a statue of Walt and then the castle. Yeah. If you go into California Adventure, it's like the same thing. You walk down the Main Street and that's the center point uh, when you get to the end of that street is the, the mock-up of the Carthay Circle Theater building. Hmm. And they put in the Carthay Circle restaurant. Like I said, it is like a five-star restaurant. It's really good. No, I will. <laughs> I remember always going to Disneyland and honestly, we would, uh, this was a long time ago, but we would go, we would take the, uh, we had season passes, we would take the Jungle Cruise, just because we liked the Jungle Cruise. And, you know, it, the Jungle Cruise is always different. It depends on the person who's there, and you can grade them on whether they're good or not. 
And then we would go over to uh, the cafe 33 or next door to 33. And uh, we would eat the, the blue bayou and then we'd go home. Or actually, then we'd go on the train. The train would drive us back to the front gate and then we'd go home. And that's what we'd do when we went to Disneyland. I've eaten at the Blue Bayou as well, and I really loved it. Oh, yeah. Oh, Blue Bayou is fun for a theme because you're inside of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yep. And then you could always sneak out bread and feed it to the ducks. So Carthay Circle Theater says it was one of the most famous movie palaces of Hollywood's golden age. It was located on San Vicente Boulevard in Los Angeles. It opened in 1926 and was demolished in 1969. Yep. Well, that's why he never was there. That would explain it. Yeah, that's right down from uh, Grauman's Chinese. Want to know a secret? Promise not to tell. We are standing by a wishing well. Make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, your wish will soon come true. I'm wishing... So for those of you who don't know uh, about Snow White, uh, the basic story is pretty girl, evil stepmother, is jealous of her, orders her killed, she survives, hangs out with seven tiny dudes, stepmother kills her with a poison apple, which actually doesn't kill her, just puts her into a death coma. So the evil queen, supposedly she's a real powerful sorceress, able to call forth spirits and uh, talk to spirits in mirrors and brew wicked poisons and stuff like that. And uh, all she does is she puts Snow White to sleep. So I'm kind of curious about that one. So the queen's plot is to get Snow White to eat a poison apple. And that sounds like it should work. No fuss, no muss. That being said, why does the queen disguise herself so blatantly and utterly obvious as some evil demon. I mean, if she was really an apple peddler, why wouldn't she just, like, disguise herself as an apple peddler? But she chooses every wicked witch role model that you could possibly have. Black hood, crooked nose, fiendish cackle. The, everything is a total stereotype. She is one broomstick away from being a Halloween decoration. And now, it works. Now, but I have a question for you. Because this was, what, 1937? Is that depiction of a witch what set the stereotype that we all think of today? Because how many witches would you have seen in movies that would have looked like that prior to Snow White? Oh, lots. I mean, think about... Uh, you would have seen Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Because it was out in the 30s. You would have... Um, I think there were a couple of more, but the Wizard of Oz comes to mind right now. And yeah. you've, even not movies, but if you go back and look at the old illustrations on some of the fairy tales from like the 19th century, you'll see something similar. So what I'm saying is that uh, Snow White really deserves what she got. Well, on that note, we need your help. <laughs> we really do. <laughs> Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS number, as we are an APS-affiliated club. 
your support is greatly appreciated. Our address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in glorious Las Vegas, 89120. You've been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 292. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Albert. This was Becca. And this was Stan. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.